0: So just while, while people are kind of arriving and settling down, um, welcome to this first meeting of the Society in the New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to be able to welcome Tim Bain to start us off this year. Uh, Tim has two chairs, as you probably know, one in Manchester, the other at the University of Western Ontario, and they are in philosophy and also in neuroscience. He says, not much neuroscience today, but at least quite a bit of psychological data. Um, and so it's a pleasure, as I say, to welcome him to talk about GIST, <coughs> right? Yep, thank you very much. Um, and let me also uh, thank Matt Saterio for the invitation. Um, Matt, um, unfortunately, can't be here tonight, but I'm very grateful for um, his input into this paper. Uh, I don't normally read my papers, in fact I've never read a paper before, Um, but then it's very rare that I've actually got a written version of the paper to read. Uh, So what I will do is I'm going to read um, the paper, but I'll break up the monotony of of listening to a a read paper with a few um, pictures now and again. In Perception and Its Objects, Pierce Strawson puts the following description of visual experience into the mouth of a non philosophical observer quote, I see the red light of the setting sun filtering through the black and thickly clustered branches of the elms. I see the dappled deer grazing in groups on the vivid green grass. End of quote. The context in which this passage appears suggests that Strawson intends it not only to capture the objects of visual experience, but also the ways in which those objects are presented in perception. And the words that Strawson attributes to his naive observer may sound commonplace, but their implications are, of course, highly controversial, as Strawson was well aware. Perceptual experience can certainly represent the clustered shapes of the elms and the illumination falling on the grazing deer, but cannot also represent the elms as elms and the deer as deer. That is not so clear. The question of whether properties such as being an elm and being a deer can be given in perceptual experience is at the heart of the admissible contents debate. On one side of this debate are conservatives who operate with an austere conception of the kinds of properties that can characterize perceptual experience. (coughs) Although conservatives don't speak with a single voice, typical expressions of the view limit the contents of visual experience to such properties as color, brightness, form, shape, motion, and texture. The central target of Strawson's essay, Air, held a conservative conception of perceptual experience And the view continues to hold plenty of advocates. On the other side of the debate are liberals such as Strawson, who hold a richer conception of the kinds of properties that that can be given in perceptual experience. Although liberals don't speak with a single voice either, the kinds of properties that they take to be perceptually represented include being a tomato, being a pine tree, and being a watch. The admissible contents debate has generally been conducted with reference to purely philosophical considerations, with phenomenal contrast arguments playing a particularly important role in the recent literature. Such arguments involve the claim that the best explanation for an alleged phenomenal contrast between two perceptual states requires appealing to the perceptual representation of a high level property, such as being a pine tree or being a tomato. (coughs) Contrast arguments have proven highly controversial. Some theorists reject the method in its entirety, claiming that it is, quote, deeply wrong-headed and epistemically worthless. That's from Tyler Burge, Uh, not holding back. Other theorists allow that the method could, in principle, provide evidence in favor of high-level perceptual content, but they remain unmoved by existing contrast arguments. This paper leaves contrast arguments to one side and focuses instead on the case for liberalism, liberalism about perceptual content, provided by what vision scientists call gist perception, hence the title. But although my concern is not with phenomenal contrast arguments, I am concerned with the notion of perceptual content that is phenomenological in nature. Perceptual content, as I understand it here, is a matter of how the world seems to the subject. As Susanna Siegel has put it, quote, nothing counts as a content of experience if it does not reflect the phenomenal character of experience. I will describe properties that reflect perceptual phenomenology as being represented in phenomenal content. Of course, the notion of a content reflecting the phenomenal character of experience hardly wears its meaning on its sleeve. And in due course, we will need to distinguish different senses in which a content might reflect perceptual phenomenology. For now, however, however, I will proceed with an intuitive understanding of this notion. Okay, section two, the meaning of a scene. In his 1964 film, The Pawnbroker, Sidney Lumet inserted a brief scene representing the protagonist's distant memory. And due to the wonder of the internet, we can uh, actually play that scene. At least I hope we can. Although the scene is presented for less than a third of a second and is unrelated to the flow of the narrative, The viewer, I take it, has no difficulty grasping its meaning. Lume was exploiting a phenomenon that psychologists refer to as just perception. Although no precise definition of just perception is available, the notion is often glossed as the amount of information that typical observers can absorb, quote, in a single glance. So let me give you a few more examples of just perception. Uh, I hope that most of you were able to place... The images presented, and they were presented for what PowerPoint tells me is 10 milliseconds. I'm not sure if I trust PowerPoint in this regard, but they were certainly presented briefly. I hope that most of you were able to um, place the scenes presented under a general category: mountain scene, uh, beach scene, and so on. If you're not, we can try it again at different presentation durations. It's common to distinguish between two forms of just perception, depending on whether the gisty property is ascribed to the scene as a whole or to an object in the scene. With respect to scene-based gist, which is what I'm going to focus on here, typical observers are astonishingly adept at determining whether a presented scene is, say, natural or constructed, man-made, so to speak, whether it is an indoor scene or an outdoor scene. So one of those scenes was a kitchen scene. I hope that people (coughs) saw it as an indoor scene. And for natural scenes, whether it represents, say, a forest, a beach, or a mountainscape. With respect to object-based gist, typical observers are astonishingly adept at identifying the high-level properties of presented objects, such as whether they are animals or vehicles. (coughs) Gist raises a number of interesting issues for philosophers of perception. One question concerns whether it is possible for perception to be purely gisty, and if this paper was on that topic, it would be called Just Gist. This idea has sometimes been suggested in connection with the interpretation of Sperling's experiments on the reportability of briefly presented visual stimuli. In these experiments, which have been discussed at length by Ned Block and and others, subjects are are unable to reliably report the identities of particular symbols that are presented to them, but they are able to identify them as natural language symbols, or at least as items that look like natural language symbols. The perceptual states here are sometimes described as involving Generic perception, which can be thought of as a kind of object based gist. So the thought is here that you can't identify the symbol as a seven, but you know that it's a number or at least an alphanumeric symbol. My primary interest here is not with the question of whether purely gisty perception is possible, but with the prior question of how exactly we should understand gist. Is it a genuinely perceptual phenomenon or is it a matter of post perceptual judgment? Do we perceive? Presented scenes as natural, for example? Or do we merely judge them to be natural on the basis of their visual visual appearance? One reason for taking a perceptual view of gist seriously is that the relevant sciences appear to treat gist as perceptual. Research into gist is carried out by vision scientists. It's published in journals devoted to visual perception. And papers on gist bear such titles as high-level scene perception or the time course of abstract visual representations. The opening sentence of a typical paper on GIST reads, One remarkable aspect of human visual perception is that we're able to understand the meaning of a complex novel scene very quickly, even when the image is blurred. Of course, the fact that psychologists and neuroscientists treat GIST as perceptual hardly proves that it ought to be so regarded. But it does, it seems to me, give us good reason to take the view seriously. Four considerations favor a perceptual treatment of just, that is, a view which thinks of just perception as genuinely perceptual. Two of these considerations are noted by Bill Fish in a paper that he published in Philosophical Studies on Just Perception. The first consideration is temporal. Just is detected extremely quickly. Subjects generally require about 150 milliseconds to identify objects that are presented in a scene. But seeing GIST can be accurately detected with exposure times that are as short as 20 milliseconds. And if PowerPoint's right in how long those were exposed for, that was 10 milliseconds. Of even more direct relevance here concerns the time required to process GIST information. Here too, GIST has an advantage over certain representations that qualify as clearly perceptual. For there is evidence that GIST can be recovered with 150 milliseconds of stimulus onset. A study by Mace et al. found a processing advantage for superordinate categories, that is, representing an object as an animal as opposed to not an animal, over basic categories, that is, representing representing an object as a dog rather than a bird, in naturalistic scenes, indicating that, quote, in the visual domain, the superordinate level may not constitute an abstraction from basic levels as previously proposed, but rather the rudimentary level at which some coarse object representations can be accessed with early crude processing of visual information. In other words, the findings suggest that the visual system <coughs> first represents the object as an animal, and then only, only later represents it as a particular type of animal, rather than the converse, which is what you'd expect pre-theoretically. A second motivation for perceptual treatment of gist detection is that it requires very little in the way of focal attention. Lee et al. asked subjects to report as quickly and accurately as possible whether images that were presented for only 27 milliseconds contained an animal or animals, whilst concurrently performing an attentionally demanding task. Performance on the attentionally demanding task was not significantly different from performance when subjects were presented with just the attentionally demanding task, indicating that objects-based gist could be detected in the near absence of attention. Rousselet et al. 2002 provided further evidence that object-based gist is not attentionally demanding by showing that subjects were as quick and as accurate in discriminating animals from non-animals when two natural images were presented together as they were when only one image was presented. On the basis of these studies, the detection of gist is sometimes said to involve no attention at all. That rather bold claim has been undermined by Cohen et al. in a study, but even they admit that Quote, natural scene perception is so efficient and requires so little attention that the perceptual system must be properly taxed if this attentional cost is to be identified. A third consideration for treating gist as perceptual concerns its role in directing and guiding perceptual processing. As Oliver and Toralba put it, identifying the gist of a scene serves to quote constrain local feature analysis and enhance object recognition in cluttered natural scenes. Information about gist can guide the allocation of attention and the direction of eye movements to provide a more efficient visual analysis of the scene so that areas of importance are scanned first and in more detail. Objects that are inconsistent with scene gist, like seeing a dishwasher on a beach, are detected more slowly and less accurately than those that are consistent with scene gist. Well, alterations to a scene that change its gist are more easily detected than those that leave its gist intact. There are connections here with the literature on change blindness, for those of you who are familiar with that. These effects require the perception of gist and are not obtained when subjects are merely primed with a verbal description of the scene. So they really are perceptual effects. A fourth and final reason for treating gist as perceptual concerns adaptation. Adaptation occurs when exposure to a certain property biases the perceptual system, away from that property thus producing characteristic after effects. A well-known example of adaptation, discussed by Aristotle actually, is provided by the waterfall illusion. A stationary object will appear to be moving upwards following the visual presentation of downwards motion. So if you look at a waterfall for a protracted period of time and then you look at a stable rock, rock that's not moving, will appear to be moving in the direction opposite the direction of the waterfall. Although the issue is somewhat controversial, there's some evidence of adaptation for gisty properties. For example, Green and Oliver found evidence of aftereffects for four global scene properties. Mean depth glossed as the scene takes up kilometers, kilometers of space versus the scene takes up less than a few meters of space. Naturalness, the scene is a natural environment as opposed to a scene that's man-made or an urban environment. Openness, the scene has a clear horizon line with few obstacles, versus the scene is closed with no discernible horizon line, and temperature, the scene environment depicted as a hot place as opposed to being a cold place. Importantly, these effects were also accompanied by changes in the gist-related judgments that subjects were disposed to make. For example, an image that was near the border between the categories of forest and field was more likely to be classified as a forest when subjects had previously viewed images that were high in openness and thus likely to be classified as fields, but that same image was more likely to be classified as a field after adaptation to closed images. In other words, there's some evidence of perceptual adaptation for categories of field as opposed to forest. Okay, to summarize those four considerations. It would be unwise to regard the perceptual status of just as settled. There are multiple ways of drawing the contrast between perception and cognition, and the considerations appealed to here represent only a subset of those that might be regarded as relevant. As Mazur has noted, any attempt to draw a boundary around the perceptual system will depend in part on views about its function, and that's an issue about which there is much debate. However, it seems to me that the case in favor of a perceptual treatment of just as prima facie-compelling and that the burden of proof rests with those who take just to be a purely post perceptual phenomenon. With that in mind, let us turn now to consider the bearing of just perception on the admissible contents debate. Section three Twin Earth, Goldilocks, and the Spatial Envelope. Although Bill Fish eschews a notion of phenomenal content when he discusses just, he does take just perception to show that there are, quote, no compelling reasons to think that the sensory, presentational component of visual experience must be limited to basic properties. In other words, he doesn't quite come out and say it defends, it provides support for a liberal account of perceptual content, but he comes very close, he's clearly tempted to say that. Is he right to think that just supports a a liberal account of perceptual content, the idea that there can be high level properties represented in perception? is just reflected in the phenomenal character of visual experience and are justy properties, that is, the properties that are represented in just perception, genuinely high level. Just provides a case in favor of liberalism only if affirmative answers to both of these questions can be justified. So let me engage with those two questions now. Justy properties certainly sound high level. Subjects report seen just with such phrases as it's an urban scene, it's a beach, It's a forest. And they report object based GIST with such phrases as it's an animal, it's a vehicle, and so on. Indeed, even theoretical treatments of GIST employ apparently high level categories such as naturalness and navigability. Although there's no algorithm for deciding when a property is high level as opposed to low level, it's fairly clear that being a beach and being an animal ought to be grouped with the kinds of properties that are universally regarded as high level, such as being a tomato or being a pine tree, rather than those that are canonically regarded as low level, such as being square or being red. Showing that justly properties can figure in phenomenal content would provide at least a partial vindication of liberalism, even if it failed to motivate the claim that being a tomato, being a pine tree, or being a watch can be perceptually represented. But are such properties as being a beach really, quote, reflected in the phenomenology of just perception? There are a number of reasons for denying that they are. And what I want to do now is work through three reasons, three objections to a high-level treatment of just content. The first of these reasons appeals to the kinds of twin-earth considerations that have been advanced by perceptual conservators for thinking that perceptual content cannot represent natural kind properties such as being a tomato. Britt Brogard, Richard Price, Jesse Prince have all pushed this kind of argument. Consider a world in which built environments look the way in which natural environments look in the actual world, and vice versa. So, a twin Earth where the visual appearance of built environments mirrors that of natural environments in our world. If you were transported to such a world, natural environments would present you with the gist that you currently associate with built environments, and built environments would present you with the gist that you currently associate with natural environments. The property that is in common to the perceptual experience of to your ex- perceptual experience and that of your phenomenal twin is not intuitively regarded as the high-level property being a built environment, but is instead more naturally identified with a low-level property involving the spatial appearance that's distinctive of built environments here on Earth. Intuitively, when you look at a built environment, your phenomenal twin, that is, at least, sorry, your phenomenal twin as far as visual experience is concerned, is the person who, on Twin Earth, is looking at a natural environment rather than the person who is looking at built environments. One might be tempted to respond to this objection by suggesting that it presupposes internalism with respect to phenomenal properties and that phenomenal internalism is controversial. Suppose that phenomenal externalists are right and that, the phenomenal, and that phenomenal properties don't supervene on internal states but depend on certain environmental relations, such as one's evolutionary history or learning history. People like Dretzky and Lycan have argued that, defended that view. Were that the case, were phenomenal externalism true, then we couldn't assume that you and someone who had exactly the same internal states that you do would be your phenomenal duplicate. Phenomenal externalism is, of course, a controversial view, and I suspect that few liberals would be inclined to accept it. But even if they were to embrace phenomenal externalism, that wouldn't provide them with a viable response to the kind of twin-earth objection I've just rehearsed. The reason for this is that the twin-earth objection just considered made no appeal to the notion of an internal duplicate, but rather appealed to the notion of a phenomenal duplicate. In other words, the objection takes no stance on whether phenomenal properties are wide or narrow, whether they're supervene on external relations or whether they supervene just on internal facts. Rather, what the objection attempts to capture is the idea that even if phenomenal properties are wide, they don't seem to be wide in a way that allows them to represent the high-level properties associated with just. Instead, these high-level properties seem to be screened off by the low-level spatial properties associated with dis- distinct kinds of just. In short, appealing to phenomenal externalism does not appear to offer the liberal a viable response to this kind of twin-earth objection. <laughs> Okay, so rather than respond to the twin-earth objection now, I'm just going to move on to the second and third objections. And then in the following section, I want to come back to the twin-earth objection and um, present a response to it on behalf of the liberal. A second objection to the liberal account takes the form of what Fred Dretzky calls the Goldilocks test. Dretzky introduces this test as a way of telling whether an acknowledged (coughs) difference in a person's overall experience... Is to be classified as visual as opposed to a difference in what the person thinks, understands, believes, expects, or knows. It is, Dretzky says, a test for determining what could occur in visual experience, quote, whatever one's thoughts, judgments, hopes, expectations, and values might be. The test involves a novice, who Dretzky calls N, who is not able to recognize pine trees based on their look, and an expert forester, E, who is able to recognize pine trees by sight and thus according to perceptual liberals like Susanna Siegel and others, has visual experiences that represent the property being a pine tree. Dretzky imagines that N is asked to paint some pine trees and that E is asked to judge the paintings. We can, Dretzky says, imagine that E has one of the following three reactions to the paintings that N has painted. You'll see why this is the Goldilocks test. The first reaction is the too little reaction. He complains that N has left something out of his painting, the pine-treeness of the tree. He experiences, he says, pine-treeness pine when he looks at the tree, but he doesn't see it when he looks at N's painting. The too much reaction, this is the second reaction that the forester could have. The forester complains that the novice has put too much in the painting. N depicted the tree as having five needles in each cluster with long, slender cones, something not characteristic of pine trees in general. The novice did so, of course, because the tree he was painting turned out to be a white pine tree, and white pine trees have five needles in each cluster, and long slender cones. But in doing this, the novice did not, the forester complains, depict the pine tree-ness of the tree, something he sees when he looks at the tree. And then there's the third reaction, the just right reaction. The novice's painting looks just right to the forester. It depicts the tree exactly as he sees it, exactly as he would have painted it, nothing added, nothing subtracted. Dretzky holds that it is only the third of these reactions, the just right reaction, that's appropriate. And that seems right to me too. But Dretzky also holds that option three, the just right response, brings with it an implication that is problematic for liberal treatments of perceptual content. The novice always and unintentionally includes in his painting of a pine tree properties, pine tree-ness, he does not see in the tree he is painting. That's an implication of the just right response. This sounds suspicious. So here I'm quoting from Dretzky. This sounds suspicious, Dretzky Dretzky says. If the novice always and inevitably paints pine tree-ness in his paintings of pine trees by arranging colors, shapes, orientations, and sizes, properties he does see the way he does... It begins to sound like pine tree is really just an arrangement, a configuration of simple properties both the expert and the novice experience when looking at pine trees. If this is so, the property of pine tree that the expert sees is simply an arrangement, a spatially structured array of colored shapes that the novice also experiences when he sees pine trees. He just doesn't know that that arrangement is characteristic of pine trees. And if the Goldilocks test, so it's the end of the quotation, if the Goldilocks test undermines the thought that perception can represent pine ness, as Dretzky clearly thinks it does, then surely it also undermines the thought that perception can represent being a natural scene. Just D properties. To see how, we need to imagine only that Dretzky's novice is unable to discriminate natural environments from built environments on the basis of their visual appearance. So the thought is we can just very easily modify. Stretzky's objection and substitute a gisty property like being a natural scene for his property being a pine tree. If the argument works against the thought that visual content can represent the property being a pine tree, it also works against the thought that it represents justy properties. So that's the second objection. Moving on to the third objection now. The two philosophical arguments against the high-level or liberal treatment of gist that we've just considered. Can be complemented by a third empirically based objection, which appeals to the leading computational account of gist perception, Oliva and Toralba's spatial envelope model. Oliva and Toralba show that a number of global features of scenes, a number of gisty properties such as their naturalness, their ruggedness, their openness, can be captured by computational models that quantify only over the spatial features of the scenes. Such models capitalize on the fact that, for example, Straight horizontal and vertical lines dominate built environments, whereas most natural landscapes have textured zones and undulating contours. Thus, scenes that contain a distribution of textured edges and undulating contours will be classed as having a high degree of naturalness, whereas those that are dominated by vertical and horizontal edges will be classed as built environments. Appealing to the spatial envelope model, Conservatives might claim that just as perceptual experience doesn't represent pine trees as such, but instead represents only the distinctive spatial gestalt of pine trees, so too, in just perception, we don't represent natural environments as such, but merely represent their spatial envelope that is associated with such environments. For example, the fact that they have lots of undulating contours rather than lots of straight lines. Ordinary observers might lack the vocabulary with which to express this spatial envelope and thus must rely on high-level descriptions they will say things like, it looks like a natural scene, it looks like a beach. But the conservative will claim the perceptual content that they enjoy is nonetheless fully captured by the low-level properties that are specified by the spatial envelope model. So (coughs) just to help you keep track of where the dialectic's at, I've given you just perception, I've given you... Uh, the liberal account, which sort of takes just perception at face value, and then I've given you three objections to the high level or liberal account of just perception. Uh, the first two appealing to more philosophical considerations. So, the first one, the twin earth objection, um, that you wouldn't have the high level content in common with your phenomenal twin on twin earth, where built environments look like natural environments. The second objection is Develops, deploys a version of Dretzky's Goldilocks test that it's only the third response of the novice um, that's appropriate, and that means um, that in effect the novice has to be able to perceive what's in the, um, the visual display, and, and in effect the GIST has to be low level. Um, and then the spatial envelope model, which takes as its point of departure the idea that computational accounts of GIST um, will appeal only to spatial relations. You don't have to invoke the representation of a high-level property, per se. Okay, so those are three objections on behalf of the conservative. Uh, doing my best here to undermine the liberal account of just... Section 4. Phenomenal reflection. What might the liberals say in response to the foregoing arguments, these, these three arguments? To make progress here, we need to return to the notion of phenomenal content and the question of what it is for a property to be reflected by perceptual phenomenology. The notion of phenomenal content is often understood in terms of metaphysical supervenience. That is, it holds across individuals and across possible worlds. On this account, a property is reflected by the phenomenology of of a perceptual state just in case its representation is metaphysically necessitated by that phenomenal property. On this view, my phenomenal twins, that is, those subjects of experience who instantiate exactly the same phenomenal properties that I do, will share all and only my phenomenal contents. Thus, if each of my phenomenal twins is representing its immediate environment as containing a red square of such and such a size, then I too must be representing my environment as containing a red square of such and such a size. Let us call phenomenal content thus defined strong content and the notion of phenomenal reflection that it's intended to capture strong reflection. Strength theory is just meant to capture the idea that it's a metaphysical supervenient relation. At least some contributors to the admissible contents debate have been concerned with strong content. And it is not hard to see why one may take this notion to be a legitimate object of interest. For one thing, prominent views in the philosophy of mind are committed to the existence of strong content. Consider those versions of representationalism that identify phenomenal properties with representational properties of a certain sort, for example defended by Michael Ty and Fred Dretzky. Although such theories typically focus on the claim that the phenomenal character of perception metaphysically supervenes on its representational properties, insofar as they identify phenomenal properties with representational properties, they are also committed to the claim that the intentional content of perception metaphysically supervenes on its phenomenal character. It's not surprising, then, that many contributions to the admissible contents debate have focused on strong content. But although strong phenomenal content represents a legitimate target of interest, we also have good reason to consider weaker notions of phenomenal content, notions that don't require that the representational content of a perceptual state is metaphysically supervenient on its phenomenal character. In fact, I think there are three reasons that motivate the need for such a notion, a notion that's weaker and not tied to metaphysical supervenience. First reason, there are accounts of perception that take it to be a genuinely representational notion, but deny that its representational content is metaphysically supervenient on its phenomenal properties. Consider, for example, David Papineau's recent account of sensory experience uh, delivered in his presidential address, 2014, I think, to the Aristotelian Society according to which perceptual phenomenology is representational in something akin to the way in which written language is representational. Just as natural language representations carry the contents that they do only contingently, so too Papineau holds that mental representations carry their contents only only contingently. Although Papineau's view has no place for strong content, he does not deny that perceptual experience is representational. Indeed, he insists on it. A second reason why we need a weak notion of phenomenal content derives from Fregean versions of representationalism, defended, uh, developed by David Chalmers and um, Brad Thompson. Such views hold that there is a kind of content that metaphysically supervenes on perceptual phenomenology, but unlike the more well-known Russellian forms of representationalism, Fregeans equate this content with modes of presentation of properties rather than the properties themselves. On the Fregean view, the strong phenomenal content of a perceptual experience is a kind of condition on extension. So although Fregeans take contents to be metaphysically supervenient on perceptual phenomenology, they deny that that the representation of particular properties is also metaphysically supervenient on perceptual phenomenology. Fregeans believe in strong phenomenal content only if one identifies contents with modes of presentation. If one identifies contents with properties, they don't for Freggians allow that perceptual experience with the same perceptual experiences with the same phenomenal character can represent different properties a third reason for positing a notion of phenomenal content that's free from commitments of metaphysical supervenience concerns the need to account for the phenomenology of perceptual particularity A number of theorists have claimed that perceptual content should be specified in purely general terms and that there is no object involving. Perceptual content, for example, um, Colin McGinn and Martin Davies. There is certainly something to the idea that perceptual content has a purely general character, for there is a sense in which the phenomenal character of one's perceptual experience is unaffected by the numerical identity of the objects of one's experience. All that matters are are its qualitative features. So, for example, you could be looking at a numerically distinct lectern. If you're looking at it from exactly the same position that I'm looking at this lectern from, we, have, we could have perceptual experiences with precisely the same phenomenology. That's the thought, and I think it's a very compelling thought. Nonetheless, so that's what I just said is on behalf of the idea that perceptual phenomenology is general, it's not object specifying. Nonetheless, there's also something to the idea that perceptual experience has singular content, and that specifying the content of one's perceptual experience requires referring to the individual objects at which one is looking, if any. Consider a situation in which I'm on Earth and I'm looking at Barack Obama, while well, my twin on Twin Earth is looking at Barack Obama's identical twin. Although there's a sense in which there's no phenomenal difference between our perceptual experiences, we might also want to say that there's a sense in which different objects are reflected by the phenomenology of our visual experiences. My perceptual experience reflects Barack Obama, whereas my twin's perceptual experience reflects a different individual. And, and in order to capture that thought, we need a notion of phenomenal content that isn't metaphysically necessitated by the phenomenal properties that we instantiate. So, taken together, these three considerations motivate the need for a sense in which a phenom- property can be reflected in the phenomenology of perceptual experience without being metaphysically necessitated by it. In other words, we need a notion of weak content. What precisely it takes for a property to be weakly reflected by the phenomenology of perception is, of course, a good question. We might want to appeal to the laws of nature that obtain in the organism's environment, to the creature's evolutionary or learning history, or to features of the organism's current environment, such as the identity of the objects with which it is in perceptual contact. Identifying when it is appropriate to appeal to these properties is an issue that I leave to one side here. My concern here is not with what grounds we content, but with the mere fact that there is good reason to posit such a notion. Okay, section five, back to just. With the notion of weak content in hand, we can now return to the objections against the liberal treatment of just. We can return to these three objections. Consider first the twin-Earth objection involving a world in which natural environments appear to us in the way that built environments on Earth do, and vice versa. This objection appears to show that being a natural environment cannot be reflected in the phenomenology of visual experience, but we can now see that this objection presupposes a strong reading of phenomenal reflection, presupposes that we're talking about phenomenal content in the strong sense of the term. If my phenomenal twin on Twin Earth and I can differ in the high-level properties that are represented in, in our perceptual phenomenology, then such properties are clearly not metaphysically supervenient on our perceptual phenomenology but it doesn't follow that being a natural environment isn't in some sense reflected in the perceptual experiences that I have on Earth. I am perceptually sensitive to certain spatial envelopes precisely because of the high-level information that they provide about my environment. And in this sense, these perceptual experiences can be said to reflect those high-level properties. In worlds in which those spatial envelopes are indicative of distinct high-level properties, perceptual experiences will weakly represent, will weakly reflect those properties. These input-based considerations for thinking of gist in high-level terms can be reinforced by considering the role of gist perception in, say, guiding eye movements and the allocation of attention. For example, the gist that is associated with natural environments on Earth will generate very different patterns of cognitive and behavioral responses in the inhabitants of an Earth in which natural environments have the visual that built environments have on Earth. What about Dretsky's Goldilocks objection? At the heart of this objection is the idea that Dretsky's novice could not manage to represent the pine tree-ness of pine trees given in his painting, unless he himself were able to recognize pine trees. Why might one make such an assumption? I suspect that is thinking along the following lines. Suppose that the novice was completely colorblind, and as such was unable to perceive the color of the pine trees that he is painting. In such a case, it would be puzzling if his painting were able to prompt the expert to accurately perceive the color of the trees. This case seems to provide intuitive support for Dretzky's assumption that the perceptual experience elicited by looking at a representation of an object cannot contain content that the author of that representation is not perceptually sensitive to. But now consider another variant of Dretsky's scenario. Suppose that Dretsky's novice suffers from an inability to visually perceive depth and can only represent the two-dimensional projection of a scene. It's a rather strange case, I know, but I think at least it makes conceptual sense, even if it's empirically problematic. It is this projection, the two-dimensional projection of a scene, let us suppose that the novice attempts to represent in his painting. If we adopt the Goldilocks test, then we would be forced, sorry, could the expert, nonetheless perceive depth in the novice's painting. So the novice can't perceive depth, draws the scene based on the two-dimensional projection. Could the expert looking at the novice's painting nonetheless perceive depth in the painting, perceive that the painting represents a scene in which has the following depth-related properties? If we adopt the Goldilocks test, then we would be forced to answer this question in the negative for the Goldilocks test assumes that one cannot see more in an image than its architect is perceptually sensitive to. But it would surely be a mistake to suppose that the expert couldn't form an accurate representation of the relative size of the represented trees on the basis of looking at the novice's painting. Berkeley might have held that depth cannot be visually represented, but few contemporary conservatives would want to follow his lead. Even though the representation of a distant tree occupies less canvas than is occupied by the representation of a more proximal tree. The laws of perspective surely enable the expert to see the, dis- the distant tree as larger than the closer tree. It seems to me, thus, that the Goldilocks test ought to be rejected. So even if just perception fails the Goldilocks test, uh, I think the appropriate response is to reject the test itself. I think Dretzky's um, asking too much of perceptual content in appealing to the test. What, finally, of the spatial envelope objection? The objection shows that high-level content of gist perception isn't a primitive feature of its content. We are sensitive to the gist of a scene in virtue of being sensitive to its spatial properties, its spatial envelope, and it is this feature of gist that the spatial envelope model attempts to capture. But the objection goes wrong I would suggest, in assuming that the content of gist is exhausted by the features that we appeal to in characterizing a scene's spatial envelope. Indeed, from an explanatory perspective, limiting ourselves to the content of the spatial envelope is to miss the entire point of gist perception. We are perceptually sensitive to scenes that are dominated by vertical and horizontal lines in the way that we are, precisely because they are indicative of built environments. Section six, conclusion. In his commentary on Susanna Siegel's The Contents of Visual Experience, Jesse Prince remarks that although her view aligns with common sense, quote, insofar as we take ourselves to see lions and tigers and bears, it breaks from the kinds of information processing stories that dominate in vision science. End quote. The burden of this paper has been to suggest that the story told by vision science is not quite as one sided as Jesse's remarks suggest. Vision scientists, vision science might not support the claim that we perceptually experience lions, tigers, and bears, but it does, I've suggested, provide some support for the claim that there is a sense in in which we perceptually experience beaches, forests, and cityscapes. The more general, perhaps more interesting lesson to be drawn from the foregoing concerns the need to distinguish different versions of the admissible contents debate. In effect, I've suggested that there are different admissible contents debates. There are different senses in which the content of perception can reflect its phenomenology and a property that might be reflected in one of these senses need not be reflected in another sense. Thanks very much.